on, on uh, iPads and things. My preference is to have an actual book open in front of me, but you do whatever works for you as we go through this text this morning. If you can't tell, I'm kind of coming over a cold um, I, that I've been having this week, and it is affecting my voice. And so I don't know what's going to happen today as far as uh, the sermon is concerned. Uh, I might, you know, get a little worked up and I might, my voice might squeak or crack or something. So if that happens, feel free to laugh at me. It's fine. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll manage. Um, but we'll see what happens here as we go through these verses in the Gospel of Luke. Now, as I mentioned before, earlier, um, we are in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in the, the book of 2 Samuel for several weeks, all the way since January. And b- before that, for a couple of years during the winter seasons, we've been in First and 2 Samuel. And now we're shifting gears to the Gospel of Luke, which again, if you've been at Riverview for a while, this is something we've been doing for, well, as long as I've been the pastor here for Uh, Just about six years now, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke during certain seasons of each year, bit by bit, and so far we've reached to uh, chapter 15, and so that's what we're doing today. And one of the reasons we kind of transition and seem to jump all over the Bible throughout the year at Riverview is that we we want to communicate that we believe that this Bible, this book, is all telling one singular story. The whole Bible, any part of it, every part of it, is pointing us to one message. And that message is the glory of God through his gospel, through what he has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe that you can find that message in the gospel of Luke. You can find it in the book of 2 Samuel. You can find it in the book of Psalms or wherever you go in the Bible, that is what it is pointing you towards. And so that's why we kind of seem to jump all over the place here at Riverview. But hopefully that's been made apparent to you, that no matter where you are in the Bible, it is telling you, it's pointing you towards the gospel. And we certainly see that in these verses today. Now, as we begin, I want you to think of something, get something in your mind that you maybe have recently lost and that you put some effort into looking for. Maybe it was a set of car keys. Maybe it was a wallet or a credit card or something or a purse, whatever it might be. And as you think, as you get that that item in your mind that you've lost and that you were looking for, um, how hard, how much effort did you put into finding that thing when it was lost? And however much effort you put into finding that thing probably depended on its value to you, right? And certain things are going to have different value, and so you're going to put different amounts of effort and time into finding them if they're lost. For example, if you have lost your car keys and you've got a place that you need to go, it's very important for you to find those car keys. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, my wife and I were preparing all of our tax documents for our tax man to get uh, all prepared. And so we put a lot of time and effort into finding all the necessary paperwork and all the documents and everything that needed to be assembled in order to go to the tax man. And we quite fervently looked for all of those things. But if you maybe lost a sock in the laundry, you're probably not going to put a lot of effort into finding that sock because you have lots of other socks and a single missing sock just really isn't that important in the grand scheme of things to you. Plus, it'll probably just turn up on its own at some point. Well, chapter 15 of Luke, we're only going to look at the first 10 verses today, but this whole chapter in the Gospel of Luke is all about things that have been lost. We read earlier about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then next week on Easter Sunday, we're going to to learn about a lost son. 
And eventually, every one of these three things that goes missing is lost. This week, we're going to look at, again, that lost sheep and the lost coin. Next week, we'll look at the lost son. But the passage starts out like this in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Now, Jesus has drawn quite a following, and a significant portion, uh, portion of that following is disreputable individuals, tax collectors, and the general qualifier of sinners. And that upsets the scribes and Pharisees in verse 2. It says the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, when I first read that, it got me thinking, how did they know that Jesus was eating with sinners? I mean, to some degree, everyone is a sinner, right? So anyone that Jesus eats with is going to, be, it's going to mean that Jesus is eating with sinners. But that's not what the Pharisees mean, because the Pharisees had a very high regard for themselves. They took pride in how well they obeyed God's law. And by obeying God's law, they believed that they would become perfect. They would be free of sin. So the idea that Jesus would eat with people who were not super righteous like the Pharisees was not palatable to them. But also, while it's true that everyone is a sinner to some degree, we have to admit that there are some people who kind of wear their sin on their sleeve, so to speak. It's much more obvious. There are some sins that are not so easily hidden beneath the surface. And Luke says that tax collectors kind of fit that description. Tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus, and they were easily identifiable as sinners. They were considered traitors to Israel and traitors to Jewish culture and the Jewish way of life because they were working for the Romans, and the Romans were the occupying force in Israel. And if you were a Jew collecting taxes for the Romans, it meant that you had betrayed your culture and way of life in favor of the Romans. Not only that, but it was not uncommon for a tax collector to come to you and say, hey, you owe $100 in taxes, when in reality you only owed 50, but that guy was going to pocket the extra 50. And if you didn't pay, he had the authority to go sick the Roman guards on you and they would throw you in jail until you paid not only your $50 tax debt, but also that extra 50 to the tax man. In the series, The Chosen, which we screened here at the church just a month or so ago, they do a good job of portraying the effect of being a Jewish tax collector. In this television show, they show Matthew before Jesus calls him. He is, of course, a tax collector, and he needs to make his way across the marketplace to get to his tax booth on the other side. But he knows that if he goes and just walks across the marketplace, he's going to be insulted. People might spit on him. And who knows what other manner of things could be done to him because he was seen as a detestable traitor, a sinner who had capitulated to the Romans. And so in the television show, what he does is he actually pays a local merchant he gets into his cart and covers himself up with blankets and that guy gives him a ride across the marketplace to his tax booth so he can you know, be free of all the insults as he goes. But tax collectors were hated by the people. And so the notion that Jesus eats with tax collectors is scandalous because tax collectors are seen as lower than dirt. But Luke also says there's another category of just general sinners that are following Jesus. And that irritates the Pharisees too. These were people who you could tell were sinners just by looking at them. 
maybe because of their reputation or maybe there was something about their looks or their dress that kind of lets you know who they, who they are and what they do. Whatever the case may be, it's clear that Jesus is associating with societal outcasts. People that you would probably look at and go, ugh, and kind of shake your head in disgust. And if we're honest, there are people in each one of our lives with whom we probably have that kind of reaction. Maybe it's the poor or the homeless, people on state assistance or welfare. Maybe it's homosexuals. Maybe it's prostitutes. Maybe it's even ultra-successful businessmen that we just, ugh, you disgust me. It could be any demographic. And I think it's probably true that each one of us has a certain segment of society to whom we have that kind of reaction, maybe just like those Pharisees did. But those people who are marginalized are the exact people Jesus came to be with. Now, why did Jesus associate with marginalized sinners? Well, I would tell you that primarily because that's how salvation works. Jesus said back in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Luke that it's not the healthy people who need a doctor, but the sick. And that he came to call sinners, not righteous people, to repentance. Because healthy people don't need a doctor, and righteous people don't need to be saved. Listen closely to me. Jesus only came to save sinners. That's it. That's the only demographic of people that Jesus is interested in saving. Sinners. Those are the only people who can be saved. Sinners. And now the catch is, are you honest enough with yourself to admit that you are sick and in need of a doctor? Are you willing to admit that you are a sinner in need of a savior? See, the Pharisees didn't think they were sick. So obviously they wouldn't think they they need the help of a, a physician. And they didn't think they were sinful. So according to them, why do I need a savior? I'm not a sinner. I follow God's law perfectly. I don't need to be saved from my sin. See, Jesus only came to save sinners. And I believe Jesus made a point of associating with those marginalized people because marginalized people are more inclined to believe the message of the gospel. Think back again to another time in the gospels, particularly in Mark 10, where Jesus says something shocking. He tells his disciples, he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Now, the reason Jesus says this is not that there's something inherently sinful about wealth, but that wealthy, uh, wealthy self-sufficient people are probably more inclined to put their trust in their wealth than they are in him. After all, right, all of their needs are met, they're content, they have everything they want, and if troubles arise, they can always fall back on their wealth. And I think there's some truth also to the notion that wealthy people are inclined to interpret their success as God's approval of their lives. They figure that if they were doing something wrong in their lives, well, then I wouldn't be so successful, as though God inherently condones their lifestyle because it has been successful. But of course, none of those things are actually true. A rich, rich people are just as spiritually sick as marginalized people. The Pharisees are just as in need of a doctor as those on the margins. They just don't realize it. But people on the margins are much more aware 
of their needs. They don't have any preconceived notions about God's approval of their lives because they aren't successful or wealthy or powerful, and they have nothing to fall back on. So in general, I think the disposition of people on the margins is more inclined. They have softer hearts to receive the message that Jesus is there to preach. And the Pharisees are the opposite example, right? They think everything's great. God loves me. I'm a wonderful, righteous person. And so Jesus comes and says, you're a sinner. The Pharisees say, are you talking to me? (laughs) You dare to call me a sinner? But Jesus goes to the marginalized, and he says, you're a sinner. And they say, I know. And he says, I'm here to help. And they say, yes, please. Those people, the more, the more we can know our sinfulness and our neediness, the more open and receptive we are to the message of the gospel. And in general, I think people who are on the margins have that kind of softer heart. They know what's wrong, and they know that they are wrong. And so that's another reason why I think Jesus goes to receive sinners and eat with them, right? And tax collectors. Because he's on a mission to find lost people. That's why he came. He's here to find lost people. Now, in order to explain this more deeply to the Pharisees, Jesus tells two very well-known parables that I'm sure you've all probably heard before. They're in verse 4 and through 10. Jesus says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is founded, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my lost, my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, the point of the parables, again, is pretty obvious. Jesus came to find lost people. He didn't come to find people who weren't lost because they don't need to be found. Again, this is a bit tongue-in-cheek on Jesus' part because there is no such thing as a person who is not lost. We are all lost. The Pharisees who don't believe themselves to be lost are deceiving themselves. They are lost. That is why there is joy in heaven when a lost sinner repents because that is something to write home about. Just like that sheep and the coin being found. Nobody gets excited about the 99 sheep who stayed where they were supposed to be or about the other nine coins that didn't go missing. This shows us the deficiency of the theology of the Pharisees. Their conception of God was that he gave them laws to follow so that they could be morally perfect. And by their extreme, exactingly detailed approach to obeying the laws of God, they believed that God would be pleased with them. But what they didn't realize with that was that by mastering the letter of the law, they had completely failed at the spirit of it. In other words, they perfectly obeyed the law not to commit adultery, but their hearts were full of lust. And they perfectly obeyed the law to not act out in anger towards others. 
but their hearts were overflowing with hatred and rage. That's why Jesus said, he told them in another place in the Gospels, that they are like a dish that's clean on the outside, but they're filthy on the inside. Or they're like a tomb, right, that's whitewashed, and it looks beautiful on the outside, but inside there's a rotting carcass. Tragically, in spite of their outward signs of spiritual health, the Pharisees were the most gravely spiritually ill people that existed. Much more spiritually sick than the people on the margins who were obviously sinful. But the Pharisees couldn't see it. They didn't know it. And what they didn't realize is that God didn't give us his law to make us morally perfect people so that we could follow it to the letter to earn his favor and his grace. They thought that God's purpose was to make you a more moral, well-behaved person. Instead, Romans 2 tells us that God gave us his law so that we could see how sinful we really are. And we need to know how sinful we really are in order to know how much we need a savior. The Pharisees didn't know how sinful they were, so when Jesus says that he came to seek and to save the lost, they're like, well, okay, that's not us then. We're not lost. We're not sick. We obey the law perfectly. But they were self-deceived. This is why when we share the gospel with people, we must, must, must include the message that all people are sinners. It doesn't matter how much good you've done, how many old ladies you've helped across the street, how much money you've given to charity or something else. You are a sinner. You are lost. You are sick. And you need to be found by the great physician and healed. Now, unfortunately, the message of sin has been somewhat lost in the preaching of many churches. Rather, they focus on positive things, life lessons, and living your best life now. Even our local Christian radio station here in the Twin Cities, their tagline is uplifting and encouraging. But talking about sin isn't uplifting and encouraging, so we don't talk about it too much. But you know what? The gospel can't make sense without it. Because you can't know that you need a savior unless you first know that you're a sinner who deserves hell. Unless you know that there's something from which you need to be saved. God's purpose is not to make you into a more moral, well-behaved person. Instead, God's purpose is to redeem the most immoral, worst-behaved people and to conform them into the image of his son. And then, when that happens, that is why there is great rejoicing in heaven when a lost sinner comes to repentance. Because that person was lost, man, deeply lost. And Jesus found them. The worst, the most wretched, Jesus found them and saved even them. And those angels go nuts in heaven. But there's something else going on in these two parables that Jesus tells that we should definitely not miss. And that is the effort that Jesus puts into searching for lost people. Now, one of the common ways that these parables are often interpreted is that we see the value, right, of the lost people that Jesus is looking for. And we read these parables and we come away with this sense of, wow, man, look at how valuable I am to Jesus, that he would leave the 99 sheep to go looking for just little old me. Folks, that is not the point of these parables. If anything, it's just the opposite. 
Remember, we just said that all people are lost in sin and they need to be found. Even people like the Pharisees who believe themselves to be good are self-deluded and they just don't realize how lost they are. We are all lost hopelessly in sin, poor, pitiful, blind, wretched, and naked. We are all lost to the nth degree. There's not a lot of value in that. What is it about me that inspires Jesus to come looking for me, this lost sheep who has horribly gone away after sin? So rather than the point of these parables being how our value inspires Jesus to leave the 99 to go looking for one, the point is that even though we are so unvaluable, so worthless and sinful, still, even then, Jesus goes looking for us. And the text backs this up. If you look at these verses, this is about the shepherd. He has one missing sheep out of a hundred. Now, back in the first century, most flocks of sheep, well, modest flocks of sheep in those days, ranged from anywhere between 50 and 200. And this guy has a flock of 100. So although one sheep out of 100 is not insignificant, it's also not going to make or break this guy's shepherding business, Right? Same is true of the woman with the missing coin. She had 10 silver coins. She lost one of them, leaving nine. Well, the silver coin that she was missing was called a drachma, which is equal in value to a Roman denarius, which is about a single day's labor, single day's wage. So by losing the coin, she lost about a day's wage worth of money. Now, again, that's not insignificant, but it's also not going to make or break her bank, right? So the point isn't the thing that went lost and the value of the thing that went lost, but rather the effort that went into finding what was lost. What did the shepherd do? He left the other 99 sheep and he went off to who knows where to find that one sheep that was lost. And do you know that by doing so, by leaving the flock and going by himself to go and look for this sheep, he's putting himself in all sorts of danger because this is not a hospitable area. The the, the topography is not very easy to traverse. Also, there's wild animals that are out there that could attack him. There's thieves and robbers that could beat him or even kill him, let alone the fact that who knows what happened to the sheep. It wandered off from the flock and went who knows where. It could have been eaten by a, a wild animal. So maybe he's not even going looking for a sheep. He's just going looking for remains. But still... This shepherd, he, has, he knows all of that, right? But even still, he goes out and pours himself into finding this one lost sheep. And the, this woman, she tears the house apart. She turns on all the lights. She sweeps under every surface until she finds that coin. She leaves no stone left unturned until she finds what she's looking for. So the emphasis of these parables isn't the thing that has been found, but the effort that goes into searching for it. These parables are about how Jesus searches for people, for lost people, for tax collectors and sinners. The amount of effort he puts into looking for the worst of the worst, that's what you should come away from these parables with. What kind of effort did Jesus put into searching me out, the chief of sinners, and still he went looking for me? Can you believe that? So what did Jesus do? What kind of effort did Jesus put into searching for lost sinners? We go to the book of Philippians chapter 2 with verse 6. 
This is the effort that Jesus put into finding people who are lost, the worst of the worst. He was in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, that is how Jesus searches for lost people. That is how much effort Jesus puts into going to find that one sheep and that coin that is lost, that sinner who is on the margins, who is lost and covered in sin, doesn't know what to do next, doesn't know where to turn. That's how much Jesus goes, how much effort he puts into finding that lost person. And folks, if we will do what the Pharisees did not do and compare ourselves to God's law to see just how far short we fall, then we will realize the enormity of the grace and love of God that even then, still, Jesus came looking for me. Even when I was mired in a pool of sin, even though I was sinfully destitute, unlovable, ugly, poor, pitiful, wretched, blind, and naked, still Jesus comes looking for us. What a Savior. You should not come away from these parables feeling good about yourself, as though you're just so irresistible that Jesus can't help himself but to leave those 99 sheep and go looking for you. Rather, you should come away with an overwhelming sense of unworthiness and glory that even though you are as you are, still Jesus left the 99 to come and find you. That is a miracle of the highest proportion, that the Lord of heaven would empty himself to search for us vile creatures so diligently that he would pour himself out to the point of death, to find us. What an amazing miracle. My prayer is that you will be able to wrap your mind around just the smallest fraction of that truth and that it will blow your mind. The more you can understand that, the more you will overflow in thanksgiving and praise to God in your life. So in light of that reality, I have two questions for you in application. First and most obvious, I want you to consider this. Has Jesus found you? You are lost in sin. And Jesus is on a mission to find lost sinners. Has he found you yet? If he hasn't found you, is it possible that he hasn't found you because you don't think you're lost? You're like those Pharisees. No, I'm good. I'm perfect, man. I'm, I'm a good person. Folks, if that's your understanding of yourself, you're not going to be found. Why would you need to be found? You don't need to be found because you don't think you're lost. You need to come to the reality that you are lost sinners. Second, we saw from this passage how much effort Jesus puts into searching for and finding lost people. So I'm going to challenge you with this. How much intentional effort do you put into finding lost people? 
And to put that question into perspective, just think for a moment about how much intentional effort Jesus put into looking for and finding you when you were lost. Like we just said, he poured himself out to the point of death. That's how diligently Jesus searches for you. And so I want to challenge you. What are you doing to find lost people? You and I struggle sometimes. I think with even acknowledging or remembering the reality of lost people among us. And yet Jesus left the glory of heaven to go looking for them. So again, the question for you is this, how are you searching for the lost so that they might be found by Jesus? Maybe there are lost people right under your nose in your family or your friends. Maybe you'll have to go looking maybe a little more deeply to find somebody who needs to meet Jesus. And I think there's another challenge in this one, and this one I think is the, probably the most uncomfortable for me. Because in this, this, this chapter with these parables, we really see, again, that Jesus goes to the marginalized. He goes to the people where we would think, why are you going to them? Those are the weirdos. Those are the losers of society. But that's, like we said, that's why Jesus goes to them. Because they are the marginalized people. And so I think another challenge for us living in you know, modern American culture, Western culture and society here in West St. Paul, Minnesota, a very uh, middle-class, I guess, town, if you want to call it that, what are we doing to go and find the marginalized, the people who are really on the outside of things? You know, again, back then in, in Jesus' day, it was probably tax collectors and prostitutes were the ones that stood out the most, right? Those are the tax collectors and sinners that these Pharisees are talking about. And yet Jesus goes straight to them. I think it would be good for each of us to ask, and maybe for us as a church to ask, who are the tax collectors and sinners in our context? And what are we doing to go specifically and intentionally to those marginalized people? something you should think about. And again, that we as a church, I think, should consider. What are we doing to follow Jesus' example, to go where the lost people are, to go and find those lost people because we know what he did to go and find us? Folks, that's our motivation. We know what Jesus did. Let's follow his example and go find those lost sinners and bring them to him. Let's let let that be our prayer and our calling from this passage today. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, I thank you. I'm overwhelmed at what you did to come and find me. Lord, I had traveled far away from you in the most inhospitable terrain amongst many, many wild animals. And yet still you came looking for me. God, I praise you for your diligence, for your perseverance to find me. Lord, you didn't give up You didn't say it was too hard, but instead you kept looking until I was found. God, we praise you for your grace because there was nothing about me that was worth finding, nothing about me that would have made you want to come looking, and yet you came because you're a God of grace. Lord, I ask that you would motivate us by that same grace to go looking for lost people and to lead them back to you so that even more sinners can come to know you and be found by you and bring glory to your name for this gospel that you have
performed, that you have given to us. Lord, help us. Give us a burden for the lost. Help us to identify with those on the margins. Because, Lord, that's exactly where we were. Whether we acknowledge it or admit it or not, that's where we were. Lord, give us a desire to see lost people found. Give us a desire to see lost people come to the truth of salvation. Lord, be with us and guide us on this great mission that you have given to us. God, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. Amen.